Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for another good day, another good morning. Thank you for Sundays, your love and mercy and blessing upon us. And the opportunity, Father, for us to gather together in worship as we are people that love you. And yet, Father, in our love for you, because of your love for us, we are to worship you all the time, 24-7, with all of us. But there's one day a week, Father, that you have taught us that is set aside for the gathering of your people to worship you together. And so we're here today, God, with great, great purpose. We ask, Father, that as we turn now to your word, that you would teach us and give us understanding, help us to see, help us to get it, that we would truly be Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus. Lord, do that work in us now, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you want to use a pew Bible there, it is page 928. Mark chapter 8. We're going to finish the chapter today. And then we have two more Sundays for Christmas. We have the, the 18th and then actually Christmas. And I'm going to take a break from the Gospel of Mark for the next two Sundays and preach some, some Christmas sermons. So today will be our last in Mark until we get into the new year, into uh, to January. And here we're going to finish up chapter 8. Today's passage is one that I know that you have heard before. It is the, the, the cost of following Jesus, the, the cost of discipleship. It is Jesus saying, if anybody wants to come follow me, in which there are people all over the place and a, a room full of people who say, well, well I think I do. If anybody wants to come follow Jesus, he says, here's what you need to know, or here's what this means, or here's what you need to do. And, and so it, it is, there are some qualifications to following Jesus. And anytime you start reading what is required, you start to hesitate or, or second guess if you really want to get into all that. When I think about Christmas time, and I wrote this in the church newsletter if you pick one up, and I think about Christmas time, I think about childhood memories, so many good childhood memories, and, and Valeria and I are trying now to try to create some with, with our children. Last night we, we had some good time at home, and we watched some Christmas movies, and we made homemade or, 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 or popped our own popcorn, you know, not the kind in a bag, and just, just really had a good time together as a family, and wanting our children to, to grow up with childhood memories as well. Well, when I think about childhood memories, what also comes to mind is the, the, the memories that come from, from playing sports. And I can't even think of my childhood without sports, uh, uh, mostly basketball and baseball. But I, I wanted to let y'all know that when I was... When I was smaller, I loved football, and I, I loved being outside, and especially when it was cold, and having on a sweatshirt, and playing football, and getting my buddies together and play football, and it's awesome to score a touchdown, or to throw a touchdown, or to get an interception, even if it's just some three-on-three -three backyard football, those thrills are, are outstanding. And I remember loving football so much as an, as an elementary school boy, and I talked my parents into letting me play, and, and I had all of these big dreams of, of how great football was going to be. And I got signed up for, for football when I was about 12 years old. And 
they put me at offense and defensive end, which in other words means I never touched the ball the whole year. The entire season, I never got the ball. It was block on offense, and it was try to make a tackle on defense. That was it. Every play of every game, do something without touching the ball. See, what football had been in my mind in the backyard was always like quarterback or running back or wide receiver every single play, or always try to get an interception on defense every single play. And so I thought, I want to play football where I wear pads and, 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 and be more serious. And when I got into it, it wasn't that. I remember saying to myself, like, this, this is not what I thought it would be. And now as an adult, I've learned the expression that we use all the time, but this is not what I signed up for, right? I, I've found myself in something now that I didn't understand what it was going to be like. Now, I don't want to talk about why I didn't get to play any of the skill positions, as they would call them. Uh, that's kind of a sore subject. Only the good players get to play quarterback and running back and, and that sort of thing, wide receiver. So... Uh, Needless to say, that was my first and only year of playing organized football. I never got to touch the ball. But it taught me a lesson that you need to really understand what you're getting into before you get into it, right? Christianity is totally this way. For about 100 years in our country, we've been failing as a church in that we want everybody to become a Christian and we will label somebody a Christian just about as quickly as they'll nod their hand, nod their head, or raise their hand. And to be quite honest, and everybody here would agree whether you're a Christian or not, we haven't really had an opportunity to teach them what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of the church. And so there's people all over the place who say, that's not what I signed up for. I didn't know it was going to be like that. I didn't know that there were those expectations upon a follower of Jesus. Now, that whole category, if you want to hear a church word, is called discipleship. And discipleship is the, is the process of teaching someone to understand what it means to be a disciple. It's the process of teaching someone what it means to be a disciple. And we are, we are all, if we're Christians, in, the, in discipleship. And, and, and hopefully, as our church is growing and, and getting stronger, hopefully we're improving at teaching you what it means to be a Christian. I hope that you're here today so that you would learn further what it means to be the church and, and be a Christian. But so many times, just like I signed up for football and didn't know I would never touch the ball and therefore I didn't like it, I didn't want to play football, so many times people have said they wanted to be a Christian and they've never been taught what it means to be a Christian. Many people can't tell you the first thing about the Bible or obedience to Jesus or holiness. It's not uncommon for me to talk to some of you all and, and have you say that you're not really sure if, if it's wrong when the Bible would clearly say that many things are wrong. To be a Christian is to say you want to follow Jesus, right? The word Christian is made up the first six letters of Christ, meaning that you are a follower of Christ. You're a follower of Jesus means your allegiance is to Jesus, your devotion is to Jesus, your bowing down surrender is to Jesus, your submission is to Jesus, and that is Christianity. 
Now, what I think is really good and helpful of churches is if you and I would say, I'm okay with you not rushing into Christianity. Count the cost. Stay in church for a while, a year. Listen to the preaching. Understand what it is. Think through whether you want to do this or not. And this passage today is that very thing. Wanting us to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Wanting us to understand what a real Christian is according to Jesus, not according to us or a church or our culture or anything else. According to him, according to his word. So look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 8, beginning of verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want to give you three points today. Number one, qualifying the call to follow Jesus. Qualifying the call to follow Jesus. <clears throat> Number two, counting the cost of following Jesus. Counting the cost of following Jesus. <clears throat> and number three, <clears throat> constrained by his coming while following Jesus. Constrained by his coming while following Jesus. Qualifying the call, counting the cost, and constrained by his coming. We've now had three sermons in a row that have been dealing with this passage in this context, going back to my sermon last week and then Jake's sermon two weeks ago. At verse 27, Jesus has moved on and he introduces the idea that people have opinions about him, right? And we know that everybody has their opinion. And so he asks, what do people say about me? And all these various uh, answers are thrown out. But then Jesus narrows in and says, yeah, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, you are the Christ. And, Je and, and Peter gives this outstanding answer. Our parallel passage in Matthew lets us know that, Jesus is, that Peter's answer is exact and, and Jesus points out great answer Peter and that uh, the uh, uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but only by your father in heaven does somebody understand that Jesus is the savior this is the only way and we have this here and so that is a good confession but even after that good confession, Jesus immediately begins to qualify his understanding as the Savior. And so he starts to explain how Jesus becomes the Savior. And this is something that it is baffling how people want Jesus to be the Savior, but they don't want the way that Jesus does the saving, namely the crucifixion. Verse 31 says that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Okay? You would, you would imagine 
that if anybody anywhere spoke up and said, yes, Jesus is my Savior, I loved watching the Heisman Trophy presentation like that. Speaking of making childhood memories, I sat down last night. We had to pause Charlie Brown Christmas at 8 o'clock, turn it off, turn on ESPN and watch the Heisman Trophy presentation last night because all the great memories that I have growing up with my, with my mom and dad of loving huge sports moments, one gigantic one was formed last night. J.J. loves the Louisville Cardinals, and he's already been asking me for a Lamar Jackson jersey, and he loves that, and it was special for him to be able to watch on TV with me that very thing. It was cool, a very special time for this city. I loved that moment with my family watching that. And I remember very clearly the very first words out of his mouth. I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You heard him say that last night. And it was cool to hear him say that. A good confession goes a long way. And Jesus, upon hearing Peter's good confession that you are the Savior, Jesus wants to go a little bit further and say, even to Peter who's been with him, right, good word, you are, I am the Savior. Now let me teach you how I save. And he goes into the suffering and the rejection, and he goes into the being killed, that type of language, which honestly nobody likes to hear that. And so Peter doesn't like it, and he pulls Jesus aside, and he says, Jesus, enough. Y'all remember me preaching on this last week. And he tries to stop Jesus from talking about how he is the Savior. He says, enough with the rejection, enough with the, uh, the, the, the suffering talk, man. And Jesus turns to Peter. And what is one of the, has to be one of the most climactic passages, dramatic passages in the Bible. And Jesus looks at Peter, his follower, who just made the good confession and says, Stop it. Get behind me, Satan. And we see here a huge qualifying to the call to follow Jesus. It is one thing to make a good confession. It is another thing to believe by faith, believe in your soul, believe in your heart, all that there is, there has been taught about the one you confess. In other words, many people say they believe in Jesus, but Jesus wants to make sure, do you believe in Jesus as Jesus presents himself? Do you believe in Jesus the way Jesus explains himself? So after that, he says to him, you're not thinking about my Messiahship the way God does. You're thinking about me as Savior the way the world does. He says it in verse 33, he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so then Jesus, look what he does in verse 34, he calls the crowd to him with his disciples. It's as if Jesus thinks, hold on a second. People are starting to confess me as Savior without understanding what that means. He says, y'all come here for just a second. Y'all are getting this wrong. Let me qualify this calling a little bit more. Yes, me as Savior is a great confession, but let me understand, or let me help you understand what this means. Commentator Edwards says, a wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. If you don't understand 
that you have sinned against God and that's why he was nailed to a cross to die under the rejection of his Father in heaven. If you don't understand that serious work, then when it gets over here trying to live for Jesus, then you're not going to be willing to say that right's right and wrong's wrong. You're not going to be willing to say that a man needs to repent when he's wrong. You're not going to be willing to say that, that somebody needs to turn their back on their sins and set their eyes on God if they want to be a Christian. If you don't understand what killed Jesus, our sins, then you're not, then you're not going to understand that you need to be killing sins. And so Jesus says, y'all come here, and he starts to qualify it. Verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, there's people everywhere saying, well, yeah, I want to. And, and nearly every single one of us say, well, yeah, I want to. And he doesn't just say, all right, well, come on. He says, well, let me explain it to you. Don't sign up so fast. At least hear what's required. I wish somebody had said to me, all right, Josh, here's what's going to happen. We're going to practice five days a week. It's going to be about 95 degrees during the summer. We're going to play about 10 games this season. Sometimes it's going to be rain, and we play in the rain. Sometimes it's going to be muddy. And listen, you're never going to touch the ball, not even one single time, okay? You just block and block and block. And half the time, they're going to be bigger than you. They're just going to plow you over and knock you over. You're going to eat grass, and you're going to cry. You're going to get injured a couple times. But listen, you just get up and keep blocking. We're never going to get you the ball. If somebody would have said that to me, you know what? I would have rethought. I'd have worked a little bit more on field and ground balls. I worked a little bit more on my swing. I'd have said I could get better at another sport instead of wasting my time playing this sport. If somebody would have told me, but nobody told me that, and so I went through with it, not understanding what I had gotten into. Jesus is not about, listen to me, Jesus is not about to send these people out when all they're thinking is, yep, he's the Savior. And somebody says, well, what do you mean, Savior? You know, I don't know. What do he save you from? I don't know. What's it mean that you're saved, and, and, and what's that mean for your life now? I don't know. He's not about to let them go that direction. So not only does he call the 12, his close guys, who've made the good confession, but also been rebuked now that they're like Satan, he calls them and the crowd over, and he says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All of a sudden, not as many hands, not as many people behind him, not as many saying, you're the Savior. He's qualified the call. I want to ask you here today that when you read the Bible or hear the preacher preach, when Christianity gets down to the bones and structure of it, meaning sin and death and judgment and heaven and forgiveness and all the good deep words that make people feel awkward if they don't believe, when Christianity is broken down to what it really is, do you still say, I want the Savior? Do you still say, yes, he's my Lord and Savior? Because he's qualified the call. Qualifying the call means that he has made it so that you understand you can't have this unless you have this. Here's what he means. Let me word it for you differently. One cannot just know and confess the right things and think that they are a Christian, according to Jesus. 
He wants to call you in upon your good confession and say, well, let me make sure if you want to come after me, here's what you know. Self-denial, 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 self-denial. It's in the Bible all the time. It's Jesus' first words. If anyone wants to come after me, yes, I do. Okay, let him deny himself. One cannot try to preserve his life here and at the same time have allegiance to Jesus. Jesus says that if you want to live forever and have your life there, then there is a denial of that here, and so you are losing your life here so that you save it there. There is no saving your life here and saving your life there. He doesn't give us that option. I realize that's high stakes, but it's Jesus' stakes, and I realize that it is costly, but it is with eternity in mind. One cannot forfeit their soul and be saved. If you want to sell your soul to things that are not of God, and we don't need much explanation of all of those things, then let's just call it like Jesus says. If you want to forfeit your soul, you cannot be saved. If you want to save your soul, you come to Jesus. But if you don't want to come to Jesus, then you forfeit your soul. And if you forfeit your soul, you cannot be saved. There is no heaven for the people who have forfeited their soul. And I realize that at times that the, that the things that we forfeit our souls over are, are really fun and exciting at times. Often hollow and shallow and, and empty afterward. But in the moment, maybe great. But it is a forfeiting our soul. And Jesus makes clear you cannot do that. Jesus says, well, let's keep reading. Verse 35, forever would lose his life will... Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus starts asking questions. Let me go further. He says, one cannot forfeit his soul while trying to gain the whole world and still love Jesus. Those things are opposed to each other. Trying to gain the whole world at the expense of your soul, who you are on the inside, is set opposed to living for Jesus. It's set opposed to salvation and discipleship. You cannot have both. One cannot give anything in return for your soul. And I think this is a, a great question. You know, the first question he asks, um, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Is one that you hear all the time. It's a great question. It's, it's Mark chapter 8, verse 36. But the very next question, 37, what can a man give in return for his soul is outstanding. He's asking, is it worth it? I see that you're all into that, but is it worth it? It's costing you. You're throwing away your soul for that. Is it worth it? And his question is saying that there's, there's nothing. What can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. Not a million dollars, not a billion dollars, nothing. There's nothing you can do at the, at the end of your life that will try to make up your soul. As far as what you do, certainly turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. One cannot be ashamed of Jesus and still be saved. One cannot be ashamed of God's words and still be saved. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is qualifying 
the call. You know, one of the, one of the strong, strong areas that churches have moved to here in recent years is, is what you call a new members class. It is if there's anybody who wants to who become a Christian and, and, and move toward baptism and, and become a part of the church, then churches offer a new members class. And these were unheard of back in the day, but these are new. Our church has one. Been, we've been having it for several years. And it, it meets four times, okay? And you get a little booklet, and it is about four hour-long sessions where we teach a lot of what our church believes. We teach what the Bible is. We teach about salvation. We teach what you can expect, and we allow you to ask any question in the world. Do you think this is sin? Yes. Can you do this and be a part of the church, and this, and that, and this, and that? We ask all of those questions in there. And after four weeks, and four sessions, and four hour-long sessions, we're wanting you then to be able to evaluate a little bit, okay, is this something I want to do? Am I that committed? I mean, I've been, I've been coming for a while, but is that something that I want to do? And that's a good thing. And I'm not upset with anybody who says, you know, I've learned a lot through this, but I'm not, not sure if we're going to go forward yet. We're still thinking about it. That's awesome. Jesus here is qualifying the call to follow Jesus. You need to understand. At another passage in the Bible, Jesus mocks the person who gets into something without knowing the cost. Where I grew up in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, down the road from my parents' house, kind of set off on a farm, was this house that they started building. And it was two stories, and it was nice. And then all of a sudden, one day they stopped. They already had, like, uh, the wood up, and they had that, like, pink lining insulation stuff up, and they had the windows in. But they didn't have any of the outer stuff on, and they just stopped. And they never finished it. And years went by with this, like, half-built house there. And I always thought to myself, what is that? I wonder if something happened or what's going on. And I remember one day saying to my dad, because we drive by it all the time, I said, Dad, what, what do you think that is? He said, somebody ran out of money. And I don't know if that's true. He doesn't either, but that's a, that's a good option. Maybe they started building the house hastily. They didn't count the cost, right? And they got halfway into it, and they realized, I don't have enough money to finish what I'd started. And you know what? We all know people who are that type of a Christian. They're not really one. They started because they thought, you know what, that guy Josh is nice, and he, he, really, does, he really does seem to be a happy guy, and I kind of would like to be a little bit happier, and I wish things would go a little bit better in life. And you know what? I'm, I think I'm going to start doing church like Josh does. I'm going to start coming. Sign me up. I'll, I'll be a Christian. That'll be good. Josh, can I get baptized? Yeah, we'll help you get baptized or whatever. And next thing you know, life gets hard, and some sin comes up, and they're struggling, and family abandons them, or somebody steals from them, or something crazy happens. Next thing you know, somebody's like, you know what? I... I'm not into all this. I'm not into like having to forgive people, and I'm not into having to like uh, say no to things. I'm not into denying myself. I'm more into pounding my chest and, and being all about me. And really what happened there is they got about halfway into it and thought, I'm not sure if I'm ready to be that type of a Christian. I remember one time I watched a show, uh, an Oprah Winfrey show, where she had two different people on, on stage, and, and it was an interview of her trying to understand religious people, and, and one of them said that they were a Christian, the other one said that they were a born-again Christian. Which, by the way, if you don't know, there's no such thing as those two categories, right? There's just Christians, and, and that's it. A Christian is a born-again Christian. A born-again Christian is a Christian. There's no two different categories. But the, the Christian was the one who, you know, did the church thing and was, you know, 
a follower of Jesus and, and, and wasn't all that rigid or strict of, of going by the Bible. And the born-again Christian, as far as TV went, was this person who was very traditional and strict and by the book and every, 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 everything. And in my mind, I just kind of laughed a little bit going, those categories aren't real, y'all. Whether you call it Christian or born-again Christian or whatever, there is Jesus' understanding of what it means to know him, and there's nothing else. That's it. And when Jesus hears that people are affirming him, you're the Savior. He starts talking about suffering and rejection and dying, and they don't like it. We've got something wrong. You don't have a Savior if you don't have sin and death and judgment. Now, the glory of God is that, folks. The subjects that people hate, sin and death and judgment, have already been dealt with in the love of God for us. You don't have to deal with sins and death and judgment when you are in Christ. You are forgiven of your sins. We will forgive you of all your sins. We don't hold grudges. We offer mercy. We extend grace. We are patient with people, and we love, and we love, and we love, and our commander's command to us is that we do that on and on and on. There's no limit. As often as somebody sins, we are to forgive them. This is what it means to be a real Christian. I want you to hear here today that Jesus qualifies the call. And perhaps you're here today and you're thinking about committing yourself to Christ. Or perhaps you're here today and you've been long committed to Christ, but now you're wondering, is it even worth it? And you're counting the cost right now, re-evaluating, re-examining your life. I want to say to you, that's a great spot to be in. Keep reading what Jesus says and realize that the soul is the most important thing in the world. And be willing to deny yourself for as many years as it takes and make sure that you get heaven. Make sure that you get God. But don't be ignorant about the fact that he qualifies the call because he does. Number two, counting the cost. Counting the cost of following Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow. He doesn't say, if anybody wants to come after me, right this way. He says, if anybody wants to come after me, Deny himself, take up the cross, and then let's go this way. And there is a cost to it. When you start talking about how much something costs, phrases like this often come out. Man, that's expensive. Or you may say, it costs a lot of money. That costs a lot of money. Or you might say, you get what you pay for, right? You get what you pay for. I like phrases like that because they're so real. It's so true. But what everybody knows is sometimes, listen to me, sometimes you say, man, that's expensive. Man, that costs a lot. You get what you pay for, and you know what you still say after that? That's right, I'll take it. That's right, I'll take it. Why? Because it's worth it. Why spend $30,000 on a car? Because it's worth it. Why spend a hundred, hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand? I don't know how much your house is on a house because it's worth it. 
to the young people, we always say, why spend $200 on a pair of Michael Jordan shoes? And they say, man, it's worth it. Some things are expensive and cost a lot, but they're worth it. And if God Almighty says he will welcome you into his love, forgive all of your wrongs at the expense of Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, the answer of the sinner is, man, it's worth it. Yes, I want Jesus. I want God. I want the love of God, and I'm on my way. And the way is his way. Self-denial, cross, and following him. You know, there's a ton of talk these days about discipleship. I opened up with that. The process of teaching someone to, to follow Jesus. And it's almost laughable and humorous at times how the conversation will be on all of these different things and never get to these very words, self-denial and taking up a cross. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, taking up a cross really means nothing to you. What does it mean when it says take up a cross? It's referring to the way somebody's crucified. You know, they take Jesus in. You remember they beat him and they flogged him and they, they did all of that cruel stuff to him and they, they really wore him out and he was bloody. And remember, I tell you all this a lot. Isaiah says that Jesus was so beaten and mutilated that he didn't resemble a human. It looked more like a bloody pulp of an animal that's been killed on the highway and just hit by truck after truck after truck. And you think, man, was that a dog or a deer? What, what was that? Isaiah says Jesus didn't resemble a human. He had been beaten so much. Just a big bloody mess. And after they did that, they gave Jesus a cross. And he had to carry his cross outside the city to a hill called Golgotha where he would be killed. You have to carry the thing that's going to kill you. You have to carry the thing that they're going to use to kill you. They bring the nails. You bring the cross. All right, lay down on it. Let's do this. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, he is telling us to do something that he has done. Jesus is asking us to come and die to our sinful, selfish ways. Die to the pride that says, I've got to be right, I've got to be most, I've got to get the most attention, I've got to get the glory, and change our lives to where we want God to get the glory. That's why the psalmist sings, not to us, O God, not to us, but to your name be the glory. It's why John taught us in chapter 3 that we must decrease and God must increase. We want God to get the glory. The cross brings that to mind. Whatever it is, listen to me, whatever it is in your life that sounds too expensive for you to give up, listen to me, whatever it is in your life that sounds too expensive for you to give up in order to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, bring it and die with it and get salvation, get life. Man, that's expensive, but it's worth it. I went to Africa for the first time in 2001, and I loved it. I was in Durban. It's about the same size as Chicago, a really, really big city, and I loved being there. I was there two months doing sports and, and ministry. It was, it was outstanding. 
And one day we were walking through, we didn't spend a lot of time in downtown Durban, one day we were walking through downtown Durban, and there were people everywhere. It was kind of like New York City, people all over the place. You're walking down the sidewalk, bumping into people and all of that. And normally people were looking at you like they could tell that you were a foreigner, and they were looking at you and all that. And all of a sudden, I've told this story before, but I like it. All of a sudden this one guy stopped me, he was an African guy, and this one guy stopped me and he says, are you of the cross? I'd never been asked that in my life. I've never been asked that again. I had never talked to that man before in my life. He said, are you of the cross? I didn't really know what he meant, and to this day, I'm not exactly sure what he meant. But as I paused for a quick five seconds, I thought to myself, I bet he means he knows I'm not from here, and he's hoping that I'm a missionary telling people about Jesus. I said, yes, I am. He said, praise the Lord, and kept walking. I've never seen him again. But I like a man who can sum up all of Christianity in the cross. Are you of the cross? Is that where your Savior died for your sins? Is that where you die to yourself so that you might live to Jesus? J.C. Ryle, who's been my favorite lately, says, The words of our Lord are plain and unmistakable. If we will not carry the cross, we shall never wear the crown. Mark goes on quoting Jesus after that great call and says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And then he asks those questions again. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's like getting to the end of your life. It's, it's asking the questions before you're at the end of your life that you would think at the end of your life. So was it worth it? Are you happy with God? You know, the Bible teaches without a shadow of a doubt that the very moment that you breathe your last, you will stand right in the presence of God Almighty for him to judge you and either welcome you into his kingdom, well done, my good and faithful servant, or, 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 or push you away into the wrong direction, uh, depart from me, I never knew you. And the Bible wants us to live now with those, those uh, destinies in mind. And these type of questions help us get there. Are you happy that you've neglected your soul? Are you happy that you've neglected your family? Are you happy that you haven't dealt with your sins? Are you happy that you haven't disciplined yourself? Are you happy that you've not repented of these things? Are you forfeiting your soul? J.C. Ryle comes back and says, let us often ask ourselves whether our Christianity costs us anything. Does it entail any sacrifice at all to you guys? Has it the true stamp of heaven? Does your Christianity look like you long for heaven and this earth right here is just not doing it for you? He says, does your Christianity carry with it any cross? Because Jesus says, take up the cross. He says, if not, we may well tremble and be afraid. We have everything to learn. A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. It will do us, listen to this last sentence, it will do us no good in the life that now is, and it will lead to no salvation in the life to come. What we may call Christianity 
what we may call Christianity here according to our own terms and not allow it to be defined by Jesus' terms, he says, offers us nothing now and offers us nothing then in the age to come. Counting the cost of following Jesus, it's expensive. It costs a lot. You get what you pay for, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Folks, it is absolutely worth it for you to deny everything you need to deny and make sure you get Jesus. No question about it. And it will be a sad, sad day when it comes time for us to gather at your funeral and we know that you have not loved God. Because there's only one type of person that lives forever in heaven, one who loves God. It's expensive to repent of your sins and follow after Jesus, but it's worth it. That's the cost. We count the cost, and we resolve, we conclude it's worth it. So Jesus qualifies the call, and then he counts and wants us to count the cost, and then lastly, we are constrained by his coming while following Jesus. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's outstanding that God says this. He says that there is a sense in which people who claim him are ashamed of him. I see it all the time. I see it all the time. I know people who say they believe in him but will never pray, never pray with their family, never thank God for the food, never pray before dinner, never pray when they're sick. They'll say they're going to pray, but they never will. I see it in here all the time with people who've come, come to worship but don't want to worship. They don't sing. We're ashamed of him. I remember that time I went to, I think I was at a ball game, and I ran into somebody who said he worked with one of you all. And I was pumped, man. I met somebody that knew you all outside of here. I thought that was cool. I said, hey, do you know such and such? They said, yeah. I said, man, that, that fellow goes to our church. Good guy. He said, never would have taken him to be a church guy. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you're ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation. It's a no-brainer, y'all, that once you get outside of this hour, people aren't living for God. Purity and holiness and godliness and honesty and integrity and self-denial and taking him across, those things aren't popular. But the people that love Jesus are still going to be those things. And to not be those things is to be ashamed of him. This, is the first, this isn't the first time that he brings up that this generation is adulterous and sinful, and he's not talking about this generation, although it sounds like he could be. In chapter 7, verse 6, he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, listen to me, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is that you? 
Do you honor God with your mouth by being here today and saying you're a Christian, but your heart is far from Him? That perhaps you're not a Christian. But notice here in this, in this verse 38 that what he's saying is that, that, that Jesus is coming back. And, and when Jesus comes back, he will grab those who love him and he will save them. And at his second coming, there will be a people who are waiting for him. That's the very word Hebrews uses, that he's coming back to save those who are waiting for him. And all those who aren't won't be saved. And so my third and final point is that we are constrained by his coming while following Jesus. It is this idea that our Father's coming back to get us. I'm, I'm waiting for him. And he could come back this afternoon or tomorrow or when I'm 100 years old. But when he comes, he ought to find us waiting for him. And, 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 and the waiting for him looks like I'm not ashamed. And then he says the thing that is just, that will shake you. He says, if you're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of you. It is the Bible's truth that God will be ashamed of you if you are ashamed of him. In other words, God will not come back to save you if you don't want him to, if you don't love him. Listen to this quote from Ryle. He says, I, I like this quote. There are thousands of men who would face a lion or storm a breach if duty called them, and they would fear nothing, <clears throat> yet they would be so ashamed of being thought religious. And they would not dare to avow that they desired to please Christ rather than men. He says, marvelous is the bondage in which men live to the opinion of the world. I know many of you are counting the cost as we speak. I've been praying for you for weeks and months. Some of y'all have been praying for years. And I know that in your heart, listen to me, in your heart, you're wanting to get up, deny yourself, take up the cross, and say all eyes on Jesus. I know you. But what's holding you back is what that would cause everybody else to think. This is one of the hard parts about living in a town where everybody knows each other, small town, right? This is one of the hard things about being a church in a small town where our relationships are so deep outside of the church that we almost never let the church relationships be stronger than those that aren't godly relationships. And it bothers us. It bothers us. Today I want you to hear the great call of God. Better a thousand times to confess Jesus Christ now and be despised by man than be disowned by Christ before his Father in the day of judgment. Yes, if you decide to follow Jesus, some things will have to change. But it'll be so worth it. You'll be a child of God. You'll be on your way to heaven. Your soul will have peace. May it be that our church hears the call and the cost of following Jesus. Hears the call and then says, I want to. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus' words.
God, help us not be those to say, I, I, this isn't what I signed up for. God, help us be those who are committed to your word and know, no, this is what I signed up for. I want heaven, eternal life, salvation. I want to know God. Oh, Father, I pray you'd work that in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here today and you're wanting to respond to the call to follow Christ, then do that. If you've never said you want to be a Christian and make it public, now's the time. Don't be ashamed of it. If you're here today and you're looking for a church that you want to be a part of, you want us to be your, your church family, we want to help you do that.